Welcome to Art, Nature, Science at Binnaburra, the podcast that tells the story of the mountain's natural wonder through art making and exploring the creative spirit and celebrates the history and heritage of this magnificent World Heritage Area. My name is Michelle Walker and I'm joined today by Tony Groom. Now, if you're listening, you probably know who Tony Groom is, but let me introduce him anyway. Tony grew up at Binnaburra and went on to manage the lodge with Connie, his wife, in the 60s and 70s. In 1975, inspired by a Churchill Fellowship visit to the national parks of the US and Canada, Tony founded International Park Tours with Connie. 40 years later, he continues to find inspiration in the national parks of the 67 countries he has visited. He's a published writer and photographer, and I'm very delighted to welcome you, Tony, to the podcast. Thank you, Michelle. Your family has such a long connection with Binnaburra and Lamington, literally from the beginning. Can you tell us a bit about Binnaburra's history, including the role of your father, Arthur, that he played specifically in co-founding the lodge at Binnaburra and his role as first secretary of the National Parks Association of Queensland? Yeah, sure. We need to go back to the early 30s when he and Romeo Lay got together, first of all, to form the National Parks Association with Romeo as chairman and dad as secretary and then they also formed a company called Queensland Holiday Resorts Limited where after they discovered Mount Roberts as the ideal location for a lodge uh, on the edge of or actually now surrounded by the Lamington National Park so together they got together and and built it most one of the most amazing pioneer stories I've ever read I think Um, they were a good combination dad was the the dreamer a fairly impractical man and Romeo was the very practical engineer type so they complemented each other and built the place with no power no road access no nothing really they just built it out of their bare hands and I used to love telling the story of that the visitors yes and everyone when you still arrive at Minnabara and I know we're harking back to the days when you know you could really appreciate the slab construction of some of the rooms and the rock mm. walls and so forth. It just yeah. looked like a pioneer's um, paradise. Yeah. I used to love pointing out the biggest slab of all on the corner of Cabin 1. Uh, unfortunately, it's no longer there. But um, yeah, that one slab, I think, told the whole story in one, one piece of wood. And you grew up at Binnaburra with your two brothers and your sister? Yes. Um, went to Beachmont School. And lived at Binnaburra till it was time to go to Brisbane to go to high school. That must have been hard leaving the mountain. I guess it was. I didn't think much about it at the time. <laughs> it was exciting to go to high school, although I didn't enjoy that very much. Little country boy, shy country boy going down to the big city. Had to adapt to that. But uh, yeah, we still went back to Binnaburra on weekends and then, and then eventually went back when I was 21 to manage it. Yes, so that was, tell us that story because that was a big slab of time, wasn't it? Something like 15 years that you and Connie. Yeah, well, my father died in, yeah, uh, father died in 1953 while he was on a sales trip to Melbourne of a coronary occlusion. And for for the next seven years, the place was fairly badly managed. The two part time managers, uh, we didn't really understand what it was there for, for as a gateway to the national park. So it went, it actually went broke. And the directors called a meeting to close the place down. Uh, the, the regular shareholders and regular visitors refused to accept that. And um, somebody said to me at that meeting, why don't you go back and manage it? And uh, I didn't even think about it. I was 21 at the time, knew nothing about 
management or business or balance sheets or anything, but I went back there and uh, took over a couple mm. of days later wow. with, with my mum. My mother came as well. And you saw it very much in its role as being the gateway to Lamington National Park, didn't you? That was a core part of your yeah. approach. It was the only part. I, I, um, didn't, well, I knew what Dad built, and Dad and Romeo built the place for to get people out into the park. And it was funny, the day I took over, I remember there was one guest due to stay that night and I, I was horrified. I thought, oh, I can't stand starting the business with only one guest. And she said, oh, she'll go home anyway because there's nobody there. And I said, oh, please don't go home. I'll take you for a walk in the park tomorrow. And that was a part of the magic, just getting them out into the park. My dad used to say, don't, you don't have to do much. Just give them a comfortable bed, a warm shower, a good feed and let the magic of the national park do the rest. So mm. that, that was my philosophy from day one. Good philosophy. So during that mm. time that you and Connie managed the lodge from the sort of early 60s to mid-70s, tell us about the creativity programs and the sort of <clears throat> science nature programs that you ran because that was a big feature of what you did. It was. It was huge. Um, funnily enough, it started out as a marketing ploy but took on a life of its own. And the principle was that in those days, Binnabarra had some very, very quiet months like February, March, June, July, November were very, very quiet. There'd probably be about 400 guest nights compared with 2,200 for the other months. So rather than say to people, oh, well, you can pay less and come in the off season, I thought, well, we'll charge them more and offer them more. So we devised a series of vacation schools the very first one wasn't my idea. It was the Wildlife Preservation Society. They decided to have a spring school in natural history. That was the very first one. So it mm-hmm. filled in, fitted in very well with my ideas of offering these other vacation schools. So they ended up with photography. Well, the biggest one was creative arts in July. And there was nine days. And, each, um, and we had about five or six workshops going on at once. So the place filled up in July where it never had before. And uh, they were subjects with weaving, pottery, painting, a uh, whole variety of things. We had Don Burroughs there one year teaching people how to play the flute. Some fabulous memories of those years. I do too. Mum was in Don Burroughs' class. <laughs> oh, was she? Yeah, Bryony was a flute player. Oh, yes, of course. I remember that. Yeah, I remember coming down the goat track from the lodge hearing flute music coming out of my house, which is where the workshop was being held. Oh, this is just too good to be true. It's just glorious, isn't it? That whole picture. (laughs) What were some of your sort of standout workshops that you remember in addition to Don Burroughs doing his flute playing? What else really resonated with you or do you think Um, made an impact? Every single one of them made an impact. I remember Merv Moriarty, who was a painter at the time. We were very lucky in that people wanted to come and join in this. So the, the tutors that we got were top people, Errol Barnes, for instance, one of the best potters at the time, taught pottery for nine days. He's still alive working on Springbrook. Oh, there was a drama workshop, which unfortunately I never had a chance to join any of the workshops full time because I was too busy running the thing. But I did drop into some of them and I remember the drama workshop was pretty dramatic. <laughs> uh, we even had one called Human Potential, which in those days was very, very uh, modern and brave. Uh, it's you know pretty common these days, but oh, there's so many. 
before its time. Yeah. Mm. It was probably, yeah, it probably was before its time, yeah. At the time, there were very few vacation schools like this. There was one at Toowoomba run by the university there, I think, but we were the first ones to do it in a holiday lodge atmosphere. Mm. Yes, I remember it was a very busy time at Binnaburra. During that time, people mm. just flocked to it. It's that idea of having a learning experience in an environment that is so beautiful. It sort mm. of tends to catalyse each other, doesn't it? Especially if you're doing photography, painting, any of that, you just look outside to the yep. natural yep. environment and get inspired. Well, it's it was very marked. One year we um, it rained for most of Creative Arts Week and what came out of that was so different. Normally, as you say, you know, the painting, the weaving, the pottery, everything was influenced by the surroundings. But this particular year, all the stuff, all the work that came out could have been done in the city hotel because yeah. it <laughs> rained all the time. They didn't have a chance to get out. Very unusual to have rain in July, but that was one year. You just had to brave the leeches if you were going to head out into onto the tracks in, during yeah, the rain. Yeah, that was right. part of the deal. Yeah. So... 1975, you had your four months over in the national parks of the US and Canada. That spurred mm. quite a lot of ideas coming back to Lamington, didn't it? Tell us a bit about oh, that. Oh, yeah. Oh, so many. Um, one was the Census Trail, which is still there. That came from Yellowstone National Park. That was the first Census Trail that I ever saw. There's a few of them now. And when we built the one at Binnaburra, it was the longest in Australia at the time. Um Lamington Natural History Association came from that trip because uh, every national park in the, U in the US has a friends of the park sort of association. So that came out of that trip. I didn't actually set it up. John Luscombe, who was the manager at the time, ran the first meeting, but it was definitely a result of the Churchill Fellowship. The Scenic Rim so Association came out of that. Well, the whole Scenic Rim idea, because my father had promoted that way back in the late 20s and 30s, and it just sat on a government pigeonhole for a while. And when I was in the States, I saw all these amazing long-distance walking tracks. So that uh, was another one that came out of that uh, that uh, the trip. Well, eventually, the International Park Tours, one of the Binnaburra guests said, um, oh, can you take us back to America? Just show us what you saw. And we just thought, oh, that would be a great idea. So it was going to be a one-off trip. We took 36 people on a six-week tour of the United States and Alaska and Canada. I can't imagine how we'd be brave enough to do it, but it worked so well. And then uh, we decided to make it a full-time job. Yeah. Yeah, and, this, and the Environmental Study Centre also came out of the Churchill Fellowship. Uh, many national parks in the States have something like that mm. where so, kids can go and learn about nature. Such a crucial thing that Census Trail, which is, you know, a roped walk, if anyone's not familiar with it, it's an ability for someone with... Uh, that's visually handicapped but also people sighted can go mm. along and there's braille plaques but also you can be you can blindfold yourself and have that experience of of the forest and mm. it, you know it's really impactful because I remember it from I think I might have been about 10 when it was built and was the NHA involved in some of the building of the census trail Tony? Yeah. Yes they yeah. were it was a combination of LNHA and Binnaburra yeah. And we worked well with the blind associations, three or four of them. And that was fun, putting that in. We had blind people come up and uh, we walked around a, an existing trail that was there, a um, very short trail, and they they said, oh, 
this is way too short. Can we have a much longer trail? Isn't <laughs> so, <laughs> that so wonderful? They, so we took them along that very narrow trail that used to be below the kitchen. Yep. And they were amazing. Yep. You know, it's quite a risky trail to do, but they were quite confident. And they, they said, oh, look at the mountain, look at the valley below us. They could feel the valley below. And um, wow. they were such wonderful people to work with. So we extended the original idea of the track to about four times longer. Unfortunately, it's not there either now, but no. the, the first part of the track is still there. Yeah. And as you said, the NHA, the Natural History Association, which was established in the mid-70s, is still going strong and has had a really mm. big impact on helping. It's entirely run by volunteers, is that right? It is, and it's got an amazing record of staffing the visitor centre yeah. every weekend except for a couple of occasions when there was a cyclone, but every weekend since 1975. It's an amazing record. And and those volunteers were really the first, often the first port of call when people were stopping as visitors, that they would share their experience of Binnaburra and the mm. nature and the beauty and where to go and what's the sort of best tips um, that visitors could have an experience. And I remember being, <laughs> being being left on the visitor's counter as about a 10-year-old and my mother buzzing off to do something and just said, you just need to send, you need to know where the nearest toilet is, the nearest waterfall <laughs> is, and can you drive to the waterfall? And I knew yep. the answers to those. So that was the hot tip. <laughs> as a, you a you picked on the volunteer. two most common questions. <laughs> They were pretty yes, your right. Was, yeah, your mother was one of the most regular volunteers <laughs> there for years and years. And it had that visitor centre just had a great uh, sort of orientation too for people to understand. You were talking before about the scenic rim, but understand Lamington in the place of the landscape and its relationship to Wollumbin and Mount Warning, you know, the, mm. the whole sort of centre of the volcanic activity and where Lamington got its beautiful rich soils and Yep. Where, where it got its vegetation as a result of those soils and all that influence from the south where the volcanic activity was and there was a lot of that information yeah. shared with people as they arrived. I remember there was a model of the Mount Warning Caldera, which is yeah. one of the largest in the world, and that it was the only way you could understand the Caldera because you need to be at about 10,000 feet above it to see the pattern. So it's I think so that true. was one of the most, um, yeah, one of the most outstanding um, pieces of natural history interpretation that there was there. Mm, very impactful. I also loved the Environment Study Centre and it had such a critical role for teaching kids, didn't it, and the ability for kids to come up and have an experience with sometimes mm. with their teachers, um, often with their parents, but that ability to be in the forest and learn things about the natural history and the sort of beauty of what Lamington contained, all from the sort of Binnaburra portal. That was such a significant um, facility. It was. And um, one of the most important roles was to teach people about our role in nature and our impact on it long before you know, uh, climate change was even thought about. Mm. So um, I think um, that was life-changing uh, event for a lot of kids and their parents. Their parents would mm. hear about their stay at Binnabar and want to come back later with their with their kids. So that was a, a beautiful offshoot of that. Thing. That is a good thing, isn't it? That snowball effect. Mm. Such a long history of sharing information, Binnabar being a portal and being that way of people coming in and having an experience of nature in such a way 
and you did a lot of that interpretation and extension and you know it was ecotourism before the word was even invented i love exactly. the pioneering nature of binabara at lamington a lot of the work was based on a, the work of a man called steve van mater who was an american well he's i think his main principle is that there had to be magic whatever the kids were doing there had to be some magic in it so uh, he really uh, well i remember one time murray browning who was the teacher at the time put up this sign down somewhere in the middle of the rainforest saying this land will be developed for housing and then um, and it suddenly showed to the kids and the kids would be horrified of course and, they, and part of the exercise was to write a letter to the local council saying you can't do that and then after they'd written the letter i think he explained it was just the exercise that wasn't wasn't going to be developed he was a bit but, of a rat bag murray of, wasn't he yeah he was <laughs> well he took took well after his uh Mentor Steve Van Mater, he was a, even more of a rat bag. <laughs> but uh, they, between the two of them, they introduced a lot of magic. And and uh, Linda Roy, who was the other teacher at the time. Mm-hmm. So they were magic days. Mm. Yeah, I agree. So that which brings us to the devastating experience of the 2019 fires and the loss of the buildings at the lodge and also I understand you lost your family home and your, you lost your brother's home as well, is that right? Well, oh, well our original family home, that's right, that's right, we'd lost that, but we moved into my brother's home after he built it. We bought the house that he built, which is the one with the amazing rock walls and back in 75, um, and that, that was burnt and the granny flat that I built for my mother plus the house below that, which was the one we built originally, but then it was taken over by the lodge and then bought privately. So all those three houses went, along with several down on Timbara Drive, down on Beachmont. They're mm-hmm. tragic. And, but the loss of the lodge, we, we none, none of us can get used to the idea. It's just um, devastating. It can't be rebuilt the way it was, even if they had no. the money. And even, but even if they had the money, they can't recreate those hand-built slabs and shingles and uh, you know the hand-built nature of the place yeah. can never be yeah. replaced. There was something about putting your hand on those slabs mm. and those rocks that connected yeah. you to back through time and, you know, sort of yeah. decades and decades of time. Exactly. Mm. Since the fire, you've been replanting a lot of locally native species on your properties. What Tell us some of the plants that you're using and why. I'm using only fire-resistant plants, there's no such thing as fireproof, but on the whole northern slope, which is the most fire-prone area, that's where the fire would come up, I planted lomandra, which is the reed thing you see all over the place. It's good to plant in fire areas because if you know there's a fire coming, you can just torch it, burn it, leaving nothing left to burn, and then it will come back from its corms, which it did after the first fire. A lot of plants came back on that slope of their own accord, and I've just added another couple of hundred so that that whole northern slope will eventually be covered with lomandra in other areas i've planted the rainforest grove each plant of which is has some indigenous use and there'll be a guide to that indigenous use mm-hmm. and then as well as that there's tracks one is one's called the wildflower track there's a tall trees track a fern grove a palm grove and even a little gondwana grove including species that date back to gondwana um, you know, hoop pines, um, macrosamias and things like that. Yep. And then most surprisingly of all, this little plant came up. It's called Bolwara, 
and uh, its Latin name is Euphemia benesii. And uh, one of the local regenerators told me it goes back, its lineage is 120 million years. Wow. It's one of the first flowering plants. <laughs> and uh, that, that just amazed everybody. It's a very unusual flower. It does flower in Flemington, but it only each flower lasts only a day, so it's not often seen. Oh. <laughs> but, um, there's two of them up there in the, on the fern track. And the curator of the Mount Cuthbert Botanic Gardens wants me to bring the seeds down when they ripen so he can try and uh, propagate them. Oh, that's exciting. For little things like that. Yeah. Yeah, and the regenerators said that those seeds could have been lying in the ground for 100 years until the perfect conditions arrived, which might have been a cool, semi-cool fire because it was just over the brow of the hill. wouldn't have yeah. been as fierce as the northern side. And the seeds suddenly decided it was the time to do their thing. It's exciting. Nature is magic, isn't she? It is, yeah. <laughs> so you've been watching the Art Nature Science program that Renata and the team yeah. of volunteers is running. What are your thoughts about this sort of new era for Binnaburra? Oh, I love it. It's um, it's impossible to recreate the whole lodge full of workshops like we used to do in July. But So these are individual events, um, but each one of them has so much to offer. They're, they're, they're a wonderful innovation, I think, and it's uh, going to introduce more people to Binnaburra through their special interests. Mm. So, yeah, very exciting. I just want to finish with this quote. I'm going to quote you back to you. How's that? Ooh. National <laughs> parks are islands of hope which mm. provide peace and inspiration in an increasingly frantic world. So I thank you very much for your time today, Tony. It's lovely to have a chat to you and reconnect after all these years. It's been way too long. Thanks, Tony. Thanks, Michelle. The producers and artists on this podcast acknowledge the traditional owners of the Binnabar area in Lamington National Park, the Yugambeh Language Group. We also thank Catherine Slingsby for the podcast's theme music, an excerpt from her piece, Sweet Dream. <laughs>